We wrapped up a series last week on being a disciple, a disciple's life, and we're starting a new series this morning on Ruth. And this is going to be a short series because Ruth is a short book. Let me say a little bit about it before I read the passage. And I usually don't give a lot of intro when I start a new series I, I, because sometimes if you front load all that stuff, it gets forgotten along the way. So I'll try to farm in background as we go. But let me give you a few things about this book that we're going to study, at least till, uh, till Advent. It's in the Old Testament, and you're going to find out in the very first sentence that it takes place during the time of the Judges, and it comes right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. You've got Joshua, and then Judges, and then Ruth. And the, the, the time of the Judges is a really, I'll use the word, weird time. In the history of Israel. And if you read the book of Judges, it is weird. Weird violence, weird decisions, uh, weird impulses on the part of God's people that had these these laws and these promises and just kind of it come unglued. The refrain in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. and, And that really plays out. So that's the backdrop, that's the setting of the book of Judges fairly small cast of characters. You're going to get a bunch of names in the first few verses. We're going to look at all of chapter 1, but I want you to to know this before I read it. After verse 5, no men. And that's fairly fairly unique in the Bible. After verse 5, for the rest of the chapter, it's, it's only women. Again, very unique in the Bible. One other thing, though, and then I'm going to read the passage. I, uh, I have never taught all the way through this book, so some of this study is my first time to, to drill down deeper. And one thing I learned is that there's, there's been centuries of comment about Ruth because you had Jewish comment from back in the day, and you've had Jewish comment along the way, but you've also had Christian comment for the last, you know, almost two millennia. So lots of study. It, was there anything new to say about Ruth? And apparently there was because it's been fairly recent that folks have looked up and said, This is a theological book. And the reason that hadn't been celebrated as much before now is that Ruth doesn't sound like Genesis or Exodus. In other words, it it doesn't sound like where you have God talking to you or God bursting in and saying, I'm going to do this miraculous thing and then he does a miracle. Ruth is not like that. God is mentioned. You know, you'll hear one of the characters talk about the Lord, the Almighty. But he's just, it's almost like he's in the background. And really, it's been in the last half century or so. It's not that no one had ever said this, but there's been more consensus to say, this is a theological book. Who's, who's running everything? And I, that's the thing I hope will come out more and more as the book unfolds, is that whether or not God is bursting in saying, I'm doing this right now, he's the main character. So let's look at this. Uh, Let's look at Ruth chapter 1, the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, 
and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall, shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for your Word. Thank you for the Scriptures. And... There's a great deal here that's not like our lives. The names are different and the culture is different. And most of us don't farm and raise our own food. And just a great deal about it is is alien to us. And so we pray that you'd open our eyes to what you did in these women's lives. But we pray that you would connect the dots to our lives. And open up our hearts. And turn us toward you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was listening to a podcast. And um, it's a 
fairly theological podcast. I listen to other kinds of podcasts, but this one was a, a theological one. And uh, the woman who is being interviewed in this podcast is a woman named Nancy Guthrie. And she's, uh, Nancy Guthrie is wife and mom and a uh, writer, pretty prolific writer and a speaker. She's based in Nashville. And uh, something important to know about her, to shed light on what I'm about to tell you, is that Nancy Guthrie has lost two children. She lost two children at the age of six months due to a, a physical condition. And the other thing is that she and her husband engage in, in retreats and in a ministry to parents either facing the loss of a child or, or probably more commonly who have lost a child. So she has lost children herself and deals regularly and deeply, interacts deeply with parents who've gone through that. Well, she was being interviewed, and, and in this podcast, the subject of the book of Job came up. Uh, now, the book of Job comes after Ruth in the Bible, but chronologically it's before. And in the first chapter of Job, Job's life just falls apart. His, uh, his children die. He, uh, he's a wealthy man. His, his, his stuff is, is taken away. His personal life is devastated. He starts to physically suffer in chapter 2. But at the end of chapter 1, Job looks at what happens, and he says, The Lord gave, the Lord take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But Job's wife says, Are you still sitting there blessing God? Curse God and die. And uh, so th- these, these guy, theologians that were interviewing Nancy Guthrie said, You know, it seems that she's, that she's not a believer. And Nancy Guthrie, I, I, this really stuck with me, she said, Do you know what I take her comment to be? I take her comment to be the crazy things that people say when they're grieving. And I'm really not being melodramatic when I said that was the first time I ever saw Job's wife as a real person. Like up to that point, she was kind of a cartoon character, sort of like Job is good, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job's wife is bad, curse God and die, and didn't see her like a real human Because when people are devastated and their insides are just howling with grief, we say crazy things. She may have been somebody very close to God whose life is torn apart. But she became a real person when I heard that. And what I'm hoping is that Naomi, among other people, will become a real person as we study this. Listen to this. One of the... um, one of the resources I was using as I'm, as I'm studying the book of Ruth is by a woman named Carolyn Custis James. And she, she says at the beginning of this book, this is the book that I was born to write. And I don't think she's being arrogant. She just said, I love the book of Ruth and I have meditated on it most of my life. Listen to what she says. She draws a parallel between Job and Naomi. She says, once widely dismissed by Christians as out of sorts, Naomi has been upgraded from a self-absorbed malcontent to the full stature of a female Job. Parallels between the two sufferers are striking. The extent of their losses, their agonized bewilderment, wrestlings with God, even their bitter laments are mirror images of each other. Yet historically, we've wept with Job and criticized Naomi. No more, say Old Testament scholars, now we will weep with Naomi too. 
And that really jumped off the page at me. And I think I've been part of the problem because I'll read Job and just go, oh man, he's devastated. Look how his heart is broken. Even when he's saying things against God. Then I'll look at Naomi and go, God, what a battle axe. She's devastated. She's in the period of the judges and we're going to talk about her pain. So let's, let's, let's drill down into that. I want to look at two things. The pain of life to which all of us should be able to relate, the pain of life, and the providence of God. If you don't know what that term means, we'll talk about that in a second. The pain of life and the providence of God. Now, as far as the pain of life, let's think about a couple of things. Not just the occasions of the pain, you know, the circumstances of the pain, but the response to the pain. So the circumstances, but also... How do we respond to it? And by the way, you know, for some of you who are involved in community groups, you may have noticed this before. I've noticed this in our group is that after you get to know people and after people share about their lives and what's really going on in their life, if you've just been there for a while, you can just about go through the room and name this hard thing, this hard thing, this hard thing, this hard thing. And if somebody walked in, they, would th- they might think, oh, it's a really nice group of people, pretty healthy, well-adjusted people. And everybody may be well-adjusted, I don't know, but like not to see the painful things that people carry, that people bear all the time, hard things. So the pain of life, what, what is it for, for Naomi and Ruth? Well, first, famine. Now, in the Bible being the Bible, when I say famine, that can just kind of sound like a Bible thing, like there's... You know, there's floods and there's lepers and there's famines and, and not really feel the, the weight of that. Uh, one window to me about what happens to a person in, in conditions of famine was a few years ago reading a book about North Korea. It's called Nothing to Envy. I recommend it. And toward the end, it's, it's documenting the, the life of a, of a medical doctor, a woman named Dr. Kim. Uh, uh, a supporter of North Korea, believes in North Korea, believes that, it is at, that North Korea is actually the envy of the whole world, which is the narrative in North Korea. She believes it, and she imbibes it. And she's living in famine. So she's a medical doctor and just can hardly find anything to eat. And somehow, even though she's been loyal, she's been faithful, like literally speaking, toed the party line, she ends up kind of on the wrong list. And she realizes she has to escape from North Korea. She escapes. She makes it into China. Her first stop is a homestead, I think, out in the country. She looks, I think it was either in the front of the house or or through a gate in the back of the house. And she sees a bowl of rice with meat mixed in it. And coming from her condition of famine, she can't believe there's a bowl of food this big sitting out unattended. And she sits there for a second, and after a while the family dog comes out and eats its meal. And in her words, what hit her that she couldn't believe until that moment could be true is that dogs in China ate better than medical doctors in North Korea, at least in that moment. Okay, that's famine. And, and by the way, when we talk about the end of famine in this context, that would probably mean just having enough bread all the time. If, if we were reduced to eating nothing but good bread, we would consider that famine. 
They're in famine. Can you imagine being in that setting thinking, this is God's best for me? All right, so that's the first circumstance. The second one, verse 5. Remember, Ruth and Orpah are not her daughters. Those are her daughters-in-law. Naomi had two sons of her own. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was, was left without her two sons and her husband, her husband Elimelech, died. And again, this is where you have to look up and go, don't run this through the template of our experience. There is no federal relief. There is no 401k that we've been building. Men drove the economy. She's lost the men in her life, and it's famine. So it's incredibly painful. So what's the response? Again, I want to be honest about the response, but please hear me. I don't want to do the thing where we're throwing Naomi under the bus, but I want to be realistic about how is she like us, how are we like her. So what does she do? I think she does two things that are extremely like us. She gets, well, and her husband did too, got very pragmatic and very bitter. Very pragmatic and very bitter. The, the pragmatism starts in verse 1 with Elimelech. Because what did he do? All right, there's a famine in Judah. So what do we do? Do we cry out to God? We relocate to a pagan nation. Now think about that. Israel is the unique people of God, and it knows it's the unique people of God. Israel has the covenants. Israel has the law of God. Israel has the tabernacle. And we don't know exactly when this is in Judges. Israel's even the one that God sends judges to to call it back to himself. And they leave those resources because why? At the end of the day, I need food. And they go into a pagan nation that worships pagan gods. Pragmatism. But you get it from Naomi too. Where do you see it in Naomi? Look in verse 15. You know, she tells her daughters-in-law, go back. They weep and say, no. And she says, no, go back, daughters. And so Orpah, after weeping, kisses her goodbye, heads back to Moab, but Ruth doesn't. So what does Naomi say to her? Verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, it's real easy to just kind of fly past that, but we need to stop. Why in the world would an Israelite say that? What, if you're going to say, may the Lord do this, may Yahweh do this, may the Almighty do that, why would you ever say, go back to the land of the pagan God? Go back to the land of Baal. Go back to the land of Chemosh, the Moabite God, who later, by the way, in a biblical account, is served by human sacrifice. She wants him to find a husband. She wants her to find a husband. I'm too old to find a husband. I can't have a husband. I want you to have a husband If I could miraculously have a son today, would you wait on him to be your husband? No, go back and find a husband. Go back to a pagan land and the pagan gods. It's terrible advice. But it's pragmatics. You need a husband because you need a plan. But there's bitterness. There's resentment. Um, What does that look like? Well, it starts in verse 13. 
No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And by the way, when she says that in Hebrew, she's taking the language that people use about God defeating enemies, like overcoming a nation, overcoming an army. His hand was against them, and she's saying, He's doing that to me. Ruth, His hand is against me. But then look at what she says in Bethlehem to the women in Bethlehem. Do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And why she said that when she left when it was famine is interesting. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, again, level playing field. Can you see yourself in Naomi? That when real pain comes into your life, and I'm not talking about bad day at the office or, you know, a week of the common cold. I mean tragedy, loss that makes your insides howl. And if you haven't experienced that, I just don't see how you can make it through this life without experiencing it. So I would say with a pretty high level of confidence, if you haven't experienced it, it's coming. So when it comes... What does it look like to just go pragmatic and to, and to go bitter? Like, let's think about the pragmatism. And I'm going to tell you on the front end that I'm about to use an example that makes me nervous. And the reason it makes me nervous, I hope is not lack of courage, but the reason it makes me nervous is that I'm about to broach something that's so politically charged, almost politically toxic, that it could seem like I have some political agenda as I say it. I'm saying this strictly, first off, from a biblical vantage point and as somebody who interacts with you. But let's think about this. Let's say you have a churched woman, a professing Christian woman, who finds herself uh, herself in the situation of an undesired pregnancy. Maybe out of wedlock, maybe in wedlock. Why do people terminate a pregnancy? And there's a host of reasons to terminate a pregnancy. But one is just straight up pragmatism. And the reason I'm broaching this and saying, you know, some of me saying this is feedback from you. And it even goes earlier than my, my life in Greenville. Every person I've ever known who has worked in any kind of a women's clinic where they interacted either with people considering an abortion or who've had an abortion always say the same thing. Unsolicited, they always make this point, is that if you think that the only people getting this procedure are non-Christians or unchurched people, you're deluded. There are churched women and professing Christian women through here all the time. Which means that, you know, you can sit and you can have maybe years, maybe decades of teaching about the sanctity of life and that all people are made in God's image and that we're to advocate for justice, and we're to protect the lives of the innocent and all that. But when we're hurting, when it goes down, we can get very pragmatic. And there's a million versions of that. Men or women, single, married, divorced, there's a million versions of that. I'm hurting right now. There's great pain in my life. I might have had seven decades 
of teaching and preaching about how God uses suffering. God uses pain. He wills suffering to bring change in our life. Usually when suffering comes, I mean like the, the kind that just turns you upside down, the number one objective in my life is make it stop. And there may be a zillion psalms about waiting. The number one thing I want to do is to not wait anymore and make it stop. We can be very pragmatic. Can you see yourself in Naomi? In Elimelech? And, you know, as far as the bitterness, let's put a question on the table that maybe we've either never put on the table or if we've put it on the table, we never really answered it. Here's the question. How much pain does God have permission to bring? How much pain does God have permission to bring? Now, I understand the theological problems with that question. We don't give Him permission to to do anything. He's the Almighty. We'll talk about that in a second. But do you see what I'm getting at? And, And here's the thing. I don't know how I would answer that question, but I'm pretty sure that however I would answer that question, He will always surpass it. And He'll surpass it in my life, but He will for sure surpass it globally. And when He surpasses it, what is the default mode? The default mode is bitterness. There's lots of psalms that say things like, How long? Why? But, but there's a difference between how long and how dare you. And I don't know about you, but I can pretty quickly get to how dare you. And I, I'll share this too. I had two different conversations just this past week. Really didn't even mentally connect them to the sermon. Two different conversations where this came up. That when I became a Christian in my teens... And so, new Christian in my teens, young Christian in my 20s, if you had asked me, hey, Brian, later in life, what do you think will be some of the big things that you need to pray for on a regular basis? You know, I would have thought, be a man of faith, be a man of prayer, um, be faithful to your wife and family if you have family at that point. You know, biggies, sure, and those are great things. But the thing I could not have anticipated at that point that now is becoming a bigger prayer request to me is the prayer that I not despair. Because life is not kind of hard. It is crushingly hard. And the world is in global suffering. And that is documented and videoed and coming at us 24-7. The pain of life. If we stop there, that would be that kind of would be a recipe for despair. But this is why I want to get to the second thing: the providence of God. What is the providence of God? The word providence is like the word Trinity. It's not in the Bible, but it it, it encapsulates something that's all through the Bible. Uh, let me use our our catechism. It's quoted on the front of the bulletin when we talk about God's providence. We mean His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. In other words, He actually is God over everything. Now, you don't have that term in the passage, but it's implicit in uh, the name that 
Naomi uses twice. What does she say in verses 20 and 21? He's not just the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, but she calls him something else. Shaddai, the Almighty. In other words, he actually controls the things that are happening to me. I've been through famine. I lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I don't know the future. The Almighty's behind it. Is she right? She's right. The providence of God. Well, how how do you see providence in this book? Now, the rest of the series is going to unpack that, but let me say two things briefly. One is, look in verse 19. The two of them went on. This is that's Naomi and Ruth. They're leaving Moab. They went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord's brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She makes all those pronouncements as she's standing in this town called Bethlehem. Now, what can she not know at that moment? What she can't know, spoiler, is that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is going to get a husband. He's gonna, she's going to get an awesome husband. And uh, they're going to have a son named Obed. And Obed's going to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse's going to have a bunch of sons, but one of them is named David. And the closeness that you, see, that you get at the end of the book of Ruth is that the women of Bethlehem, when they see this... They don't just say, oh wow, a son has been born to Ruth. They actually say a son has been born to Naomi because of the closeness of the family. What can Naomi not imagine at that point is that she will be the ancestor of the golden king. But does that help us? And that's part of the biblical story. But does that help us? Like, for instance, if, if I could look into the future and say, you know what, all the crud you're going through, it's worth it because your great-granddaughter is going to find the definitive cure for cancer. I think if you were four months into unemployment, you would go, that's so great. I'm so unemployed. Or if you had cancer, that's so great. But I, she's a long way off. I have cancer. So then what? Go back to a woman like us, like us. A woman walks into a town called Bethlehem, seems like any old town, and says, God is against me. My life is bitter. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty is against me. And irony of ironies, she's standing in the town, a woman who lost her sons, where God is going to send his own son to be born, whom he will lose. Why is God going to lose a son? Because God is for us. Does that explain all our pain? No. Can it reinterpret our pain? Wildly interpret, reinterpret our pain. Um, I've shared this with some of you, but I'll share it again. Some of you would know the name Dorothy Sayers. 
Dorothy Sayers was a British writer, novelist, literary critic. She translated Dante's Inferno, and, or maybe The Divine Comedy, can't remember. And she wrote detective fiction. Dorothy Sayers wrote detective fiction. Amazing woman, she was one of the first women to receive a degree from Oxford University. In fact, she finished with honors before they awarded degrees, and I think they kind of retroactively awarded a degree to Dorothy Sayers, one of the first. So she writes this detective fiction series with this main character named Lord Peter Whimsey. And he's an aristocrat, he's a detective, he's a sleuth. And uh, maybe halfway through the series, Dorothy Sayers has him where he's solving crimes, but he's not... He's not whole, and he's hurting. And this character shows up in the Lord Peter Whimsey stories named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane is one of the first graduates, women graduates, of Oxford University. And she's a woman who writes detective fiction. And at first, she and Peter Whimsey, they work on some things together, and then they fall in love, and then they marry. And more than a few literary critics have said, Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into her own story. Like, she created the world, and she created the characters, and then her heart went out to the characters she created, and she entered the story. Now, you know, at that point we could stop and go, aww. But that's what God did. And God didn't just look at the unfolding story of this world and redemption. He didn't just look at it with all the pain and suffering and heartbreak and dark nights of the soul and say, wow, compelling story. He wrote himself in and wrote the pain onto himself. So that the story, and I say this almost on bended knee, so that the story can have a happy ending. Does that explain all the pain? No. Does it reinterpret it? Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And you know what that's a call to do? Is that a call to understand everything? No, actually it's a call to trust Him. May I be a voice in your life this morning and say this, you can trust Him. That we can know that because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, especially for those who right now are in bitterness, who feel that you're against them, who feel like you've testified against them, that your hand is against them. We pray that against all all probability that you would burst in and show the good news and show that your story is the story that makes sense. 
that you have written yourself into our own story. For those who are bitter of heart, we pray that you would turn them to the descendant of Ruth, the son of David, and show us good news. Open up your word to us, we pray. Feed us in Christ's name. Amen.